tonight's a, a just a beautiful night to me. Um, I remember, uh, man, I don't know what year it was. You came out to, do you remember when that was? 2003. So man, 14 years ago. Man, we're old. But uh, I was back in Seattle, and we were having a family camp of all of our churches, and they said we've got this this young buck from from North Carolina who's going to come out and preach at family camp, and and uh, Adrian Dixon came and preached at family camp for all of our churches there in the Northwest. And you know, I've I've heard a lot of preachers went to Bible school and all that, but to tell you the truth, I can't remember a lot of what they said. It might show up a lot of times, but. Um, I feel like I've got a lot, but I, I can never hardly pick out what certain preachers said. But I remember something that Adrian said. I remember he said, um, if, if the devil's not getting after you, then he doesn't consider you a threat. I remember that. I remember Adrian said that, and it was like, got me. You know, just said, like, you know, I need to be, I need to be going for the Lord. Like, if there's not some kind of pressure, then, you know, and I just remember that. And, and the Lord used that powerfully. And I, I always thought that Adrian and I were kind of working parallel because the Lord uh, was using him to plant a church, to start a church up in the Nightdale area. Um, and around that same time, he was using me to plant a church in the Seattle area. And here we were as, as uh, co-partners for the gospel on different sides of America. And I never dreamed of the day that I'd be able to be here in the same vicinity as Adrian. And, and when I got to know uh, Unity, and was candidate, and I kept thinking, man, I could be close to Adrian. I could be close to Adrian. Uh, he's been such a good friend. Um, and, and part of that good friendship comes from knowing where he is with the Lord. He loves Jesus, loves the Word of God. And uh, I know I've said this many times, that one of the scariest parts of pastoring a flock is any time you invite somebody else to come take the pulpit. That is a scary, scary thing as my job is to protect the flock and to feed the flock properly and to make sure wolves don't come in. And I'm, I'm excited because tonight I, I know what we're getting. I know we have a servant of God. Um, I know that he takes this same charge seriously out of the book of uh, 2 Timothy when Paul tells Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is, the uh, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. And that's what Adrian does. And to be sure, like the Bereans in the book of Acts, we're to have our scripture and make sure he's on task tonight preaching the word of God. But I know the Lord's going to use him, and I'm excited for that. Um, Adrian's got a lot going on in his life. Um, Adrian uh, graduated from Duke uh, Theology, and I don't know if you want to hold that against him or not, all you Carolina fans. Um, and and uh, uh, he also, if you've been up at Duke Raleigh Hospital, you may have received a visit from him or one of those who are under his care. He's, he's the head of chaplains there, or, or basically what you call it, the president of the hospital, correct? Yeah. Um, so he's up there, and as well doing the, the, the church up at Nightdale with Northside Community Church. Um, but all those, those are all you know, accolades and things, and he'll be speaking at the, the denominational triennial uh, meetings coming up here in June as one of the main speakers, and those are all great things, but what I know is he's going to come and be devoted to give us the word of God. He's got a beautiful family. He, he told me he got married, and I hadn't seen any evidence of a wife or anything for years. I thought it was just a story, but it's true. Uh, he's married. He has uh, three kids, six, four, and what, five? Six, four months. Four months. And uh, you may remember that we spent uh, many times praying for, for Adrian and his little his little baby as, as they were going through some times uh, with, that, with that one's health. So I, I know he's got probably stories to share, uh, but I want to invite Adrian up at this time. If I could just pray for you 
And um, hopefully I haven't uh, used too much dirt on you because I don't want you to use too much on me. So um, <laughs> let me pray over you yeah, and then you get to work. Right. Father, we're just so, so grateful uh, that you would put us in the same room uh, to be able to hear the word of God from Adrian tonight. And I know that uh, he would be the first to say that there's, there's nothing special about him. Um, Lord, that he's just an instrument, Lord, a tool in your hands to be used to, to edify your church, Lord, to, to, to preach and to possibly win some to the faith, Lord. And so tonight I pray that you would cause whatever it is that you would have him to preach to, to come, Lord, that, that your Holy Spirit would put into his heart and into his mouth uh, the words that you have ordained for him to speak, Lord. I pray that he would, he would divide the word of God correctly and that it would do its penetrating, powerful work in our hearts as only it can do. And Lord, we pray that at the end of this, that we brought, be drawn near to you and that you'd be lifted up. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thanks, Jason. Thank you. It is great to be here tonight with you. I'm really looking forward to being with you uh, this week. And it's funny that Jason talked about going out to Seattle. I, I, I didn't know if you had remembered that or not. But one of the things that I remember about that trip is that I am scared to death of heights. I am scared to death of flying. And that has limited me in, in going a lot of places in my life. I will be content if I stay in the ground in Raleigh, North Carolina for the rest of my life or any place that I can drive. I am, I am that deathly afraid of flying. And so when the invitation came to go out to Seattle, I was, remember talking with my parents and, and my dad and mom were telling me, it's, you know, it's not that long of a flight. You know, you'll get up and, and you'll be there. And I'm thinking, no, that is across the country. That, that seems like that would be a very long flight. And, and talking with some of the folks that were out there, I, I shared with them, I would love to come, but I really, I'm really hesitant about coming by myself. I mean, this is how scared I am of flying. And they were kind enough to say, if you want to bring someone with you, bring someone with you. And so we had a gentleman who was leading worship at our church at the time, a guy by the name of John Hathaway, Rick Hathaway's son. And he was more than willing to come out with me. And, and if that still wasn't enough. I remember going to the doctor I was seeing a doctor regularly during that time and was just talking. This was probably four months before I actually flew out there and was telling them, I, I am really anxious about flying. And as many doctors do, we give you some medicine for that. And they gave me four tablets. And the doctor told me, you take one before you get on the plane and take one on your way home. And I'm looking at these tablets, and I'm looking at how small they are, and I'm thinking, I'm, a relative, I'm not a big guy, but I'm, I'm bigger than just one tablet. I really do not want to remember anything about this flight. And so we're boarding the flight at RDU, and we're getting on, and, and I am a nervous wreck. I mean, sweaty pumps. I don't know if you've ever been in that situation where I, I think I was 23 or 24 at the time and thought I was going to have a heart attack. I mean, just that anxious about what I was getting ready to do. Convinced that, God, if you don't want me to do this, then just make the plane stop right now. We don't have to get on. I can go back. I took a, I took a tablet, and I, within 10 minutes, I didn't feel anything. And I thought, I, I need to be feeling something. And I went ahead and took a second, the second tablet. We get on the flight, and one of the things, I, this is how nervous I was. I did not consider that we had a layover in Pittsburgh. So we're pulling in, and we laid over in Pittsburgh for an hour. And I, and, and this will tell you how good the medicine worked. I do not remember anything about that flight. Uh, apparently, I had to have help getting off the plane. They propped me up with, with my friend John at a Chili's in the airport, and we sat there. I do not remember anything about getting out to Seattle. 
But I do remember being out there. I was told that I was there the best two weeks of, of being in Seattle that you could be. The rest of the time it was raining and, and all of that. It was beautiful when I was there. But I, I'm so glad to be here with you tonight. Um, we're going to be looking at a passage of Scripture tonight that is a story that I'm not sure if you've ever heard of the guy we're talking about tonight. He was a king of Judah it, back in the biblical times and a guy by the name of Joash. And so if you've got your Bibles, we're going to be looking at 2 Kings 12 and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 18. I love history. I, I am, I am a, a student of history, American history, European history, biblical history. The Old Testament to me is, is so powerful. And I think oftentimes we go past Scripture, past the Old Testament, and there are so many lessons for us today of what we can find in the Old Testament and what we can see that applies to your life, applies to my life, applies to the times in which we're living. In 2 Kings 12, we're introduced to this guy by the name of Joash. And I talk about Joash every year at Northside. We spend time during our stewardship month talking about his desire to repair the temple. Joash's reputation in biblical times was this individual who was seen as a good king of Judah. Israel, all of their kings were bad. Judah had several bad kings. Only two to three were really considered to be kings that were devoted to God's heart. Joash, I'll leave it to you to determine where you think he falls. But in verse 1, we're going to start there. This is paving the context for you of what's happening. In the seventh year of Jehu, Joash became king. And he reigned in Jerusalem 40 years. His mother's name was Zibiah. She was from Beersheba. Joash did what was right in the eyes of the Lord all the years Jehoiada the priest instructed him. The high places, however, were not removed. The people continued to offer sacrifices and burn incense there. Joash said to the priest, collect all the money that is brought as sacred offerings to the temple of the Lord. The money collected in the census the money received from personal vows, and the money brought voluntarily to the temple. Let every priest receive the money from one of the treasurers, then use it to repair whatever damage is found in the temple. The story goes on, but by the 23rd year of King Joash, the priest still had not repaired the temple. Therefore, King Joash summoned Jehoiada the priest and the other priests and asked them, Why aren't you repairing the damage done to the temple? Take no more money from your treasurers, but hand it over for repairing the temple. The priest agreed that they would not collect any more money from the people, and they would not repair the temple themselves. Jehoiada the priest took a chest and bored a hole in its lid. He placed it beside the altar on the right side as one enters the temple of the Lord. The priest who guarded the entrance put into the chest all the money that was brought to the temple of the Lord. Whenever they saw that there was a large amount of money in the chest, the royal secretary and the high priest came, counted the money that had been brought into the temple of the Lord, and put it into bags. When the amount had been determined, they gave the money to the men appointed to supervise the work on the temple. With it, they paid those who worked on the temple of the Lord, the carpenters and builders, the masons and stonecutters. They purchased timber and blocks of dressed stone for the repair of the temple of the Lord and met all the other expenses of restoring the temple. I'm going to stop right there. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? This guy's come in. He's asked them to repair the temple. 
the priest has not really jumped on it the way that the king wanted. So the king lights a fire underneath all of the people. He takes this chest and he has a, a hole bored in its lid. And people are coming and they're sacrificing everything because they want to see their temple restored. I would tell you that it's beginning to sound pretty good. The money brought into the temple was not spent for making silver basins, wick trimmers, sprinkling bowls, trumpets, or any other articles of gold or silver for the temple of the Lord. It was paid to the workers who used it to repair the temple. They did not require an accounting from those to whom they gave the money to pay the workers because they acted with complete honesty. The money from the guilt offerings and sin offerings was not brought into the temple of the Lord. It belonged to the priest. And here's the last two verses. About this time, Haziel, king of Aram, went up and attacked Gath and captured it. Then he turned to attack Jerusalem. But Joash, king of Judah, took all the sacred objects dedicated by his predecessors, Jehoshaphat, Jehoram, and Ahaziah, the kings of Judah, and the gifts he himself had dedicated, and all the gold found in the treasuries of the temple of the Lord and of the royal palace, and he sent them to Haziel, king of Aram, who then withdrew from Jerusalem. The story goes on, but when I read the story of Joash, his is a reign that is filled with such tremendous promise. There had been so many horrible things that had been happening at Judah at this point to really appreciate where these people had been. Joash's father has died, and and Joash's mother, Joash's grandmother actually, usurps the throne. She puts herself on the throne and she wipes out all of the royal family because she is trying to consolidate power but joash he doesn't realize that joash is around joash is sneaked off and hid in the temple of the lord with his nurse and then at seven years old jehoiada who was the high priest come and stages this uprising because he sees the wickedness of joash's grandmother he sees that they're veering off course and that if they're ever going to have revival in their land it is not going to be with this wicked idolatrous grandmother on the throne he comes and they depose this wicked grandmother and they put joash on the throne at seven years old he's put there to reign priest of Baal are put to death the high places in Judah are taken down and destroyed it's as if another golden era is getting ready to hit Judah there is a reign that is filled with so much promise it's a lot like a church that's experiencing revival and you look and you know and you can feel the power of God that is at work and you sense that God is going to do something amazing I am convinced that Jehoiada felt that same way He sensed God was up to something and that God was doing something. But there's a verse that stands out and it's a clue to what you and I should read into tonight, what you and I should be thinking about tonight as we talk about revival. And it's this, it's verse 2. Joash did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, not period. Joash did what was right in the eyes of the Lord all the years Jehoiada the priest instructed him. Does that tell you as to whose faith, whose conviction it was? Tells me that Jehoiada was much more a part of this and wanting to see revival than maybe Joash. What does that mean for us tonight? What does it mean when when you have such a perfect opportunity for revival? 
You have such a, a wonderful atmosphere for God to move. And then it just falls apart. We read the story of, of Joash, and he's this king who gets on fire, and he's, he's repairing the temple. The temple was at the center of Jewish belief. It was at the center of Jewish life. And he's bringing pride back to the people. He's bringing worship of God back to the people. And then all of a sudden, Joash makes this pivot when he's being threatened with attacks from people who are not part of Jerusalem, when there's uh, under threat from these other nations. Instead of Joash praying, instead of Joash turning to God, Joash takes things out of the temple, things that are, are sacred, things that are precious, things that he himself has dedicated to God, and he pays off a king to not attack him. It is a fascinating story. I think about that. I think about, we talk about Joash in our church from the good that he did. But Scripture often gives us both sides of a person's life. The redemptive side, the times where they fall short and you see God use them, the times where God uses them and they don't have an appreciation for it and they fall away. Joash is that guy. The reason that these questions are important for us tonight is that I look at the times in which we're living, and I get that we live in a very divided time. We live in a time where politically there is division. We live in a time racially where there is division. We live in a time where socially there are divisions. We live in a time where culture seemingly is moving so fast that no one really knows how to keep up with it. And yet, in the midst of all of these changes, I would tell you that things are ripe for revival. I would tell you that things are on cue for revival. It is often when we as believers are in distress that God shows up and does amazing things when we don't have the answers. And I'm telling you, I look at our church every week and I, I don't have the answers for what's happening in our world. I, I don't know how to respond other than trying to live a life of faithfulness to Christ. What does this story have to do with us? A story of almost, but not quite, revival. Where you almost have it. It would be a shame Wednesday night for us to come and eat and have banana sandwiches and all these wonderful things together. And, and to leave Wednesday night with no change, with no movement of God upon our life. For, for the commentary to be that when we walk out those doors to say, we almost had revival. We almost experienced it one of the things that you see in joash to his detriment and, and one of the things that happens in churches today is this follow the leader type of faith i, I want to read this passage again for you because this is so important joash did what was right in the eyes of the lord all the years jehoiada the priest instructed him now this story is paralleled in second chronicles in second chronicles 23 Verse 16, it says, Jehoiada then made a covenant that he and the people and the king would be the Lord's people. It doesn't mention anything about Joash making this covenant. It says, who? Jehoiada made the covenant. Not only for himself, but for God's people and for the king. Later on in Second Chronicles 24, it says this. After the death of Jehoiada, the officials of Judah came and paid homage to the king, and he listened to them. They abandoned the temple of the Lord, the God of their fathers, and worshipped Asherah poles and idols. Because of their guilt, God's anger 
burned against Judah and Jerusalem. I, I read that and I, I read that as long as Jehoiada was around, Joash did okay. Not perfect, but okay. He had someone there telling him, Jehoiada or Joash, this is what you need to do. Joash, this is how you need to respond. Joash, this would be the, the, the godly way, the holy way to respond. Joash, you need to get rid of these things in your life. Joash, we need to get rid of these things as a nation. Jehoiada is constantly guiding and directing Joash. And the minute that Jehoiada is off the scene, the minute that he dies, Scripture tells us that people came and paid homage. Do you know what homage is? Homage is when you come and you flatter someone. When you come and you bow down and you show your loyalties to someone. I don't think there's any of us in this room that don't like to be flattered. That don't like to be told, hey, you're, you're looking good. Or, or, hey, wow, you know, I haven't seen you in a while. You, you're, you look like you're doing well. Or, or, wow, your kids, man, I saw them last week. And you've got to be so proud of them. They come and, and they pay homage and when people flatter us, how, how often are we inclined to even listen to them even more what they're saying? Keep saying good things to me. Keep telling me the good that you see in my life. It tells us that they come and they pay homage. And as soon as they pay homage to him, it's like the foundation in his life that had been laid by the priest goes away. There's nothing wrong with being a follower but the problem is, Joash is a follower primarily because he had no conviction. It is okay to be a follower and to follow what others are telling you as long as you're following with conviction in your life. As, as great a pastor as you have, Jason cannot get up here and make a covenant for the entire Unity Church that we're going to be God's people and we're going to follow God. That is on each of us. Jehoiada wanted to do that. Jehoiada gets up and says, God, we are your people. I am your priest. This is your king. Except Joash never got the message. Joash seemingly was never a part of, of that covenant. And as soon as that voice that is whispering into Joash's ear goes off the scene, Joash turns. That same danger exists for us today. It can be so easy to follow someone else's teaching and just to believe what they tell you. It can be so easy to live vicariously or spiritually through someone else. And yet when the rubber meets the road and your faith is tested and that person's not there to support you, that pastor's not there to encourage you, that Sunday school teacher's not there to give you a verse of encouragement or a verse to withstand temptation. It is so easy to fall back and to give in to those things in society and in this world that are paying you homage. That is the problem with this follow-the-leader kind of faith. Just tell me what to do. Tell me what the Bible says. Tell me how I need to live. Tell me what it is that I need to know. I am amazed at, at when you look at history and you look at the revivals that the United States has experienced. And I'm so thankful that we have experienced them because that means there's a precedent of God speaking to these people. There's been two great revivals in our land. We're over 100 years removed from the last great revival. One of the greatest revivals that ever swept our land was a revival known as the Great Awakening. 
It was a revival that was led by a guy by the name of Jonathan Edwards. History tells us that Jonathan Edwards was this, this theologian that would surpass, I think, a lot of theologians today. I mean, extremely intellectual. And, and I don't know if you know much about history of churches in those times, but the, the, the pulpits were elevated pulpits. And they would have to climb this circular staircase to get up. And they would get behind this pulpit. And church would last all afternoon. I don't hear any amens on that. Church would last all afternoon. And history tells us that Jonathan Edwards was about five foot three. Now, if you've ever been to the Northeast, you know that the, the pulpits they build usually would come up to people who are normal height about this, this high. Jonathan Edwards was so short that you could not even see him by historical accounts when he was back there preaching. And history also tells us that his eyesight was so bad that he would have to bury his head in the manuscripts and read line from line for hours on end his sermon. Now, I don't know about you, I hear that and I think, my God, how did the Holy Spirit move? Like, that seems so boring to me. And yet, 40 years of revival are attributed to this man. It tells me that if people want revival, God is going to speak. If a pastor wants revival, well, that's great. If the people aren't desiring it, I don't know where that leaves us. This follow the leader faith. When you think about revival. Are, are, are you thinking about revival because it's this time of year to think about revival? Or are you thinking about revival because you earnestly desire it in your life? Are you thinking about revival because it was mentioned in announcements and it's what we do? Are you thinking about revival because when you look and assess your walk with God, you recognize that it's not as passionate or it's not as dedicated or it's not as devoted as it needs to be? And if you're willing to follow the coattails of someone else, then you will never experience revival in your life. There's another thing that happened in Joash's reign. I don't know if you caught it when we were reading the story. The very next verse in verse 3, it says, The high places, however, were not removed. The people continued to offer sacrifices and burn incense there. The high places, what, what Scripture is telling us there, are those places that are outside of town. Those places that are up on mountaintops, those places where people would go and, and burn incense to the goddess of Asherah, where they would sometimes even offer child sacrifices. And it was detestable to God. God says, you can't have idol worship and worship me as well. And so Jehoiada clears it out of the city limits. He says, we're not doing this here. But Joash, when he gets of age, when he's able to understand that God wants them to completely remove that from their lives, Joash doesn't seem to do anything about it. You might say, Adrian, I, I, don't, I don't have Asherah poles in my life. I, I don't have idol worship in my life. What about the high hills in your life where you refuse to let God be God? What about those places in your heart where you've given God everything else, but he can't touch this? Or God can't have control over this. I'll give God my time. I'll give God my talent. I'll give God my treasure. But this is my vice. And I'm okay with, with indulging in this. 
me and my wife have tried dieting. You want to talk about things that will bring your marriage closer together, try dieting together. And we have come up with this thing uh, either on Friday nights or Saturday nights. That's kind of our cheat night. I don't know if you've ever done this when, when you, you try dieting. But those times where you say, okay, we're going to get off course and we're just going to give ourselves this out to enjoy. I think spiritually at times we do that as well. We think, man, I'm a good person. I go to church. I go to Sunday school. I tithe. I read my Bible every night. But this thing, God's okay with this thing. And if he's not okay, then he likes to forgive, and I like to ask for forgiveness. So it's this great relationship that we have. But don't ask me to give this up. Joash doesn't do anything about these things that, that are detestable to God. You read through Scripture and you see that kings in the Old Testament, there's not really a, a one of them. That got rid of the high places. You see, the kings in the Old Testament are a lot like us today. They had faith in God, but they also wanted an insurance plan in case their God didn't come through for them. They wanted a backup plan in case the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph wasn't faithful. They could run over to these other Asherah poles. They could run over to these other religions and pay homage to them. They played both sides. Jehoiada didn't want any part of that joash he seemed to be okay with it i'm not sure revival will find us in our lives if we're willing to deliberately entertain sin you hear me that when we're willing to say i know this is wrong i know that this is not good for my relationship with god but i am okay with it i'm not sure you and i can expect revival if that's the case. Another thing that Joash did, I don't know if you caught it at the end of the verse that we read together, but he, he gave up what was sacred. It, it says in verse 17 and 18, about this time, Haziel, king of Aram, went up and attacked Gath and captured it. Then he turned to attack Jerusalem. But Joash, king of Judah, took all the sacred objects dedicated by his fathers, Jehoshaphat, Jehoram, and Ahaziah, the kings of Judah, and the gifts he himself had dedicated, and all the gold found in the treasuries of the temple of the Lord and the royal palace. And he sent them to Haziel to essentially pay him off so that Haziel would withdraw. What about you? What about those times where you're inclined to surrender what's sacred? What about those times where push comes to shove and, and you're on the line between do I, do I step up and let people see my witness for Christ or, or do I back away and say nothing? Those times where I have the opportunity to be with God's people but there's other things I'd rather do on Sunday morning. Those, those times where we have the opportunity to share what God's doing in our life, but because of who's around us, we grow timid and back off. God has given all of us something sacred in having a relationship with Jesus Christ. Don't surrender that. Don't just pass that off as something that is, is easy to get rid of or is easy to suspend for just a little while. Joash had years of being instructed by Jehoiada. 
Years of saying, if you're faithful, I'm sure this conversation happened between Jehoiada and Joash. Joash, if you're faithful to God, he's going to be faithful to you. Joash, if you go to God, he's going to be with you. And the minute that Joash is threatened and Jehoiada is gone, Joash handles it on his own. There's, there's no reference of Scripture that he goes to God in prayer. I, I don't see God telling him, Joash, I want you to take all of the things that you've dedicated to me, all of those things that you brought to the temple, all of those things that you called on people to sacrifice, I want you to send those to Haziel. I don't see that in Scripture anywhere. And I, I don't hear God telling us, Adrian, I want you to surrender all the things that you've dedicated to me. Those times when you said I was the most important thing. I, if we are saying Jesus is the most important thing in our life, then he always has to be the most important thing. And if you and I want revival, it will not be revival if there are other things that are more important. Jesus is not going to play second fiddle to something else. There's one more thing. And this perhaps is the one that's going to find all of us with having to make a decision. Joash starts off well. Jehoiada is there. Jehoiada goes off the scene. Joash listens to these people who come and pay homage to him. And he begins making decisions that, that really are not holy and are not godly. And God in his mercy sends an individual to go and to talk to Joash. God did this constantly throughout the Old Testament. He would raise up prophets and individuals to go and to warn, you need to come back. It was like the biblical version of GPS. You're going the wrong direction. You need to turn around. You need to come back to me. We read in Second Chronicles 24. It says, although the Lord sent prophets to the people to bring them back to him, and though they testified against them, they would not listen. Then the Spirit of God came upon Zechariah, son of Jehoiada, the priest. He stood before the people and said, this is what God says. Why do you disobey the Lord's commands? You will not prosper because you have forsaken the Lord. He has forsaken you. That's a pretty strong message. Do you want to know how Joash and his people responded? But they plotted against him. And by order of the king, Joash's name isn't mentioned here, but it's Joash. By order of the king, they stoned him to death in the courtyard of the Lord's temple. King Joash did not remember the kindness Zechariah's father, Jehoiada, had shown him, but killed his son, who said as he lay dying, may the Lord see this and call you to an account. I read that and that breaks my heart. That you have this priest who is so devoted to God, so devoted that he wants his people and he wants his king to follow God. And so devoted that he seemingly gives his son the same passion for God that Zechariah grows up and assumes his father's mantle. And when he sees Joash veering off course, he goes to Joash and he tries to talk to him. And Joash, rather than remembering all that Jehoiada did for him, Joash kills the messenger, literally. There are times when God, the Holy Spirit, speaking to us, 
And we know we need to change. We know there are things that he's hitting and speaking to our heart about. And we fight, we push, we block it out, we immerse ourselves in other things. All so that we don't have to heed or change what God is inviting us to change. There will not be revival if you ignore, if I ignore God's call. And I don't know how He's calling you. I'm not even going to pretend to know that. But I am telling you this. If God is speaking to you, not just tonight, if He's speaking to you in general, if He's been working in your life and you're just continually pushing back against it, you're not going to experience revival. Jason mentioned that I, I work at a hospital. I've, in addition to pastoring the church, I, I've worked as a chaplain for 15 years at Duke Raleigh Hospital. And it's interesting, that term revival in a medical context, we don't use that word a lot anymore. The word that's used commonly now is resuscitate. When someone goes into a code of any kind, namely a, a code blue in our hospital, and their heart stops. There's all of these instruments that were brought in and clothes get torn off, things go flying, everything is put on this person. There was so much intentional focus given on this individual to try to bring them back to life. And in 15 years, I have yet to see one individual fight back saying, I don't want it. Tonight, I imagine the Holy Spirit coming to us and fighting with us. You need this. Let me revive you. Let me bring you back to life. Let me bring you to a closer relationship with Jesus. Are you fighting it? I I don't need it. I, I don't want it. I don't want you to see me without clothes on. I don't want you to see my heart. I don't want you to see those things in my life that I'm ashamed of. If you say you want revival then it's going to require change. It's going to require us listening to God's Holy Spirit speak to us and invite us to a deeper walk with Him. As we close tonight, shortly after 2001, my brother gave me a CD to listen to. And it was a music CD, a guy by the name of Keith Green. Keith Green died back in 1983, but Keith Green was a guy that was seen in a lot of ways as being on the frontier of the modern contemporary Christian movement. Someone who who went around and did concerts, a young guy. I don't think he was Advent Christian, but he, uh, he had a ranch in Texas called Last Days Ministries, where he was convinced Christ was coming back soon. And With three of his kids, he went up in a helicopter and overlooked the area, and the helicopter was overweighed with that many people on it. It crashed, killing him, his three children. He died at 30 years old. In 1979, he was doing a concert in Tulsa, Oklahoma, on the campus of Oral Roberts, I believe. And this message was crept out, and I remember listening to it for the first time right after September 11, 2001, and it hit me. And, and I, I listened to it. I listened to it again on the way down tonight. And I, I want to finish this time together with Keith Green's words to all of us. I want you to hear it. I want to ask you to play it. 
short little section here of a book called The Revival We Need. It's an out-of-print book by a guy named Oswald J. Smith. This was first written in 1933 from a man in Canada, Toronto. This is 1933. Now listen to this. It is reported that there were 7,000 churches that did not win a single soul for Jesus Christ this entire year. That means that 7,000 ministers preached the gospel for a whole year without reaching even one lost soul. Supposing that they preached, even at a low average, of 40 Sundays, two sermons a Sunday, not including any extra meetings or midday meetings, that would mean that these 7,000 ministers preached 560,000 sermons in a single year. Think of the work, the labor, the money expended in salaries, lights, building, etc., to make this possible. And yet... 560,000 sermons preached by 7,000 ministers in 7,000 churches to millions of hearers during a period of 12 months failed to bring a single soul to Christ this year. Now, my brethren, there is something radically wrong somewhere. The understatement of 1933. There is either something the matter with these 7,000 ministers or with their 560,000 sermons or with both. In reading over the 12 rules of the early Methodist church, I was struck with the fact that they aimed at and looked upon soul winning as their only task. Let me quote from one of them. This is the, one of the 12 rules of the early Methodist church. Oh, that it would be this way now. Quote, You have nothing to do but save souls. Therefore, spend and be spent in this work. It is not your business to preach so many times, but to save as many souls as you can. To bring as many sinners as you possibly can to repentance, and with all your power to build them up in that holiness, without which they cannot see the Lord. From, quote, the Twelve Rules by John Wesley. Glory to God. The revival we need. And today in 1979, how many churches are there that don't have one convert in a full year? Well, there's 600 churches in this town alone. I've been to many churches where altar calls, altars have been barren because the fire had gone out not on the altar but on the hearts of the men and women of God in that believing fellowship that wasn't believing very much anymore. If the shoe fits, we must wear it. If my message tonight does not apply to you, you can sit back and rejoice and enjoy it. I mean, you might enjoy the music, but how can you enjoy the bleeding heart of our Lord Jesus? Oh, God, that you'd raise up men on this campus and women on this campus and in this city and in this country. The apathy that runs rampant in our country due to several things from, from the Vietnam War that we fought against a little itty-bitty nation, but we didn't win. We left. We lost against a little country of several million people. You know, have you ever thought of that? Have you ever conceived why is Vietnam so brave as to take on China? Because they beat the United States. And then Watergate came along and everybody's love for government and love for the system got a little dirty, got a little pale and a little appalled, a little apathetic. And the nation started thinking, well, look, those guys aren't working for me. They're working for them. So I better take their advice and their example and work for me too. It is reported in Time Magazine, $198 billion every year go unreported by American taxpayers. 
198 billion dollars in unreported income. How much of it is yours? The pilfering that goes on called blue collar crime is something like 40-50 billion dollars. Pilfering, that means people that don't work the hours they punch in on the clock or taking just a ream of paper home for the kids or calling in sick when they're not. If but one half of that amount could be restored to our economy, we would be the most flourishing economy in the world. When God wants to talk to his people, he talks to them in three ways. First, he touches them where it hurts in their economy. If that doesn't get their attention, then he touches their ecology, the rain, the locusts, the famines, the earthquakes, so on. And if that doesn't work, he raises up a nation to come and invade them. I think we have struck out in two of those areas. I'm not a prophet of doom. I'm a prophet of love. But love will bid a warning doom to those children that play on the freeway. And I tell you this. We need to wake up. For Jesus wept over Jerusalem and said, Bid that the Father, the Lord of the harvest, send laborers into the harvest. Now, why would Jesus tell his disciples to pray, Beseech the Lord of the harvest to send laborers in? Why would he bid them pray such a thing? Didn't he have enough faith for it? Doesn't Jesus have enough faith? Why bother asking disciples to pray when Jesus has enough faith? In fact, right now, Jesus lives, ever liveth to make intercession for us. Hebrews says he's our intercessor. Right now, Jesus Christ is praying for everyone in this room. His ministry is prayer. That's all he does. It says he liveth ever to make intercession for his bride. Right now, on the throne, on the right hand of the Father. He's interceding. What is intercession but prayer? How many people here believe that Jesus is praying for them right now, interceding for them by the right hand of the Father? The Bible tells us so. Did you ever think of that, that he's praying for you? Why bother praying? He's got lots of faith. Why bother asking? I'm trying to tell you something important. The prayerlessness of this people called the children of God, the children of the Father, is a crime. It's lawlessness. All hell breaks loose upon the earth. And the fire department, us Christians, we're the fire department. Our prayers can extinguish the fiery darts of the enemies. Well, what would you think of the Tulsa Fire Department if a school was burning with children in it and they were sleeping or reading a nice novel or even the evening newspaper or just sitting around doing nothing? Every day people go down to the pits of a deepest dark hell your neighbors, your friends, your relatives, and you don't want to blow your witness. You don't want to turn them off. You don't want to make them feel like you're trying to get them saved, so you don't, and so they go to hell. And I'm asking you, what are you giving them in return? A cool friendship? I'd rather have people hate me and the knowledge that I tried to save. All right. That message in my mind is still true today the revival we need I'm going to ask you to pray with me Father so many times in life we get into routine we find a groove or emotion and it feels right and, and we stay with it. And God, before you know it, 
there, there are things that find their way into our lives that maybe without us even recognizing that that separate us from you. Lord, this church has set aside this time for revival. This church has said they desire to hear from you. They desire to be closer to you. They desire, Father, for you to come into their lives and to revive them in their relationship with you. Father, help this time that we have this week to be more than just lip service. Help it to be more than just four days on a calendar. Help it to be more than just the words of our mouth. Father, every one of us, this community, this town, Raleigh, Nightdale, North Carolina, this world needs revival. But Father, if we're bold enough to ask You for it, if we're bold enough to come before You and say that we desire it, then Father, help us to be bold enough to receive what it is You're asking us to do. Help us to be willing to change if we need to change. To be encouraged if we need encouragement. To be hopeful if we've lost hope. To have faith if somehow our faith has taken a back seat to things. Father, I'm asking You to help us to mean it. Lord, I I thank You for Your Word. I, I thank You for examples like Joash. Lord, it's easy to be hard on him on this side of things. But Lord, I don't think there's any of us who can't find ourselves in that story. So Lord, as we begin this journey over the next couple of days. Lord, we need you. If your Holy Spirit isn't here, then what we're doing is pointless. So God, as you look upon us tonight. As you speak to our hearts. May you see hearts that are breaking and open for a move of God upon them. Lord, we're asking this not in the name of some other God, not in the name under our own power. Father, we are asking this in the name of Jesus Christ, who is interceding for us right now. It is in his name that we pray. Amen.